0: Remember that a fact, in order to be even admissible, must be relevant. And uh, a fact, in order to be relevant, must be one that would uh, affect the decision. That is, that a judge can rely on that fact Mm. to make the decision.
1: And welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the NSRLP director at the Windsor Law School. And I'm speaking loudly because we <laughs> discovered that Dana's voice is much louder than mine. Who would know? Apparently, I don't quite understand this. This, as I as I mentioned, this issue comes up in other instances in my life. So Dan- Dana's just a big shouter. I am. I'm very loud. <laughs> Look out, world. I don't think many people would say that I'm not loud enough, but this is just once (laughs) in my life. So today's podcast... So today's episode is a repeat appearance from a previous guest. We once again are welcoming Justice David Price onto the program. Indeed. Justice David Price is a longtime friend of the NSRLP. He was on our first season's podcast, and he's returning again now to talk about two topics that we find come up a lot with self-represented litigants. One is how can you protect yourself as well as possible against having costs awarded against you, something that causes people a lot of anxiety, and Justice Price is going to speak to that. And the second thing he's going to speak to, also something we get asked a lot, is how can self-represented litigants most effectively uh, and most efficiently present their materials to a judge to ensure that they will uh, be able to read them, digest them, and apply them. And he has a lot of tips for that as well. So Justice Price is a family court judge in the Brampton Superior Court. Uh, Before he was appointed to the bench, he was very involved in the local mediation community and is a very strong proponent of mediation and other settlement processes he is one of our access to justice all-stars little shout out for that um and i just want to read you one line from his nomination which was by a self-represented litigant he said in nominating justice price we need to see each other as people first and Mm -hmm. justice price does just that Mm
2: Hello, David. It's Julie calling. How are you? Very well, thank you. So I am delighted to welcome Justice David Price back to the podcast. I want to thank you again for joining us to share your knowledge as the family court judge in Ontario. But the first thing we need to do this morning is to address an issue that arose when, after your first podcast, we asked listeners to send in questions for you to answer in this second appearance. So, over to you.
0: Okay, first, uh, I'd like to apologize to your listeners for not being able to respond directly to the questions they sent following the the first podcast.
2: I want to first of all be clear to everyone listening, do not worry, stay tuned. We have figured out a way that Justice Price will address a number of important issues in this podcast that often come up with family SRL, so there's going to be a lot of important information. But first, he's going to explain why as a sitting judge he can't answer specific questions from individual litigants.
0: The reason that litigants bring their disputes to a judge is is not because they know more about the facts, they don't, the litigants know more, and not because they know more about the law and a specialist uh, lawyer in the area might know more about the law in, in mm. a particular case. The reason that litigants bring their case to a judge is because the judge has authority to make the decision. Judges are required to make their decisions in a particular way, mm. they're required to uh, decide disputes in the fairest, most timely, and inexpensive way possible, mm. and especially in the fairest way possible. And that means that, among other things, a judge must hear both sides before making a decision that's going to affect uh, both sides. Right. So if a litigant uh, writes to you and says, well, here are the facts of my case, what uh, should we do? And if without hearing from both sides, I say, well, you should do that, this or the other side should do that, your listeners might conclude that I was, in effect, deciding the case without Mm -hmm. hearing both sides. If after hearing the opinion about a case, uh, one were to appear in a courtroom, either before me or one of my colleagues, the other litigant could reasonably say, well, you can't give a, des- a decision or opinion about our case fairly because you've already given an opinion about it without hearing my side of the case right when i make a a decision in court after hearing both sides and one party thinks that the decision is wrong they can appeal it to a higher court and if i was wrong the decision can be reversed
2: What we're going to try to do in today's podcast is to ensure that we can uh, get as much information as possible out in relation to the questions that we were asked, that people sent in after the first podcast. And, you know, I should say that there are a a number of questions that we hear about frequently from self-represented litigants in family courts. So, in fact, what we're able to do in this podcast is fairly easily uh, pick up those questions and have you address them as general questions rather than specific questions from individual litigants. So I think that's still going to be extremely useful for people. And we're also going to make sure that there is information available on the website and linked to the Superior Court, the Ontario Superior Court, but I've taken the liberty of consolidating the questions that folks sent in to us um, so that they don't have case-specific facts any longer because of the difficulty that you've just described, Justice Price, with not compromising your neutrality. So let's jump in to the substance. Can we do that? Sure. So one of the things that we hear a lot about, and of course, uh, NSRLP has recently put out a few reports on this issue, is costs. And one of the things that SRLs, as you can imagine, are often very concerned about is when and whether they might be required to pay the costs of the other party, who is often represented by a lawyer. And, of course, costs are within judicial discretion, and we're going to be talking about that. Later in the podcast, but could you start, David, by talking about the likelihood, what might raise that likelihood of one party being ordered to pay the other party's legal costs if they lose in their trial? Sure.
0: I think the thing to bear in mind is that there are three objectives that a judge is required to be trying to achieve in making an order requiring one party to compensate the other for their costs. The main objective is to protect or indemnify, as we say, the successful litigant for the costs that he or she incurred. And that's done by requiring the unsuccessful party to pay that litigant's costs or a portion of it. Mm. Usually that portion might be 60%. If both parties have been conducting the litigation in a reasonable way, there are exceptions to that. It's a case involving the interests of children if the outcome could not reasonably have been expected, even with some knowledge of the law, and where each party has conducted the litigation in a reasonable way, then each of the litigants might be required to pay their own costs. But in a case where the outcome might have been anticipated, and where the litigation could and perhaps should have been avoided, then the unsuccessful litigant um, might be required to pay the successful litigant's uh, costs or a portion of them. So that's the first objective. The other uh, objectives are to punish a litigant who has acted unreasonably in the litigation. And the third is to encourage these litigants or others to settle their cases instead of uh, continuing to litigate. So those are the three objectives, and they're applied equally to all litigants, whether they're represented by a lawyer or not. Mm -hmm. A self-represented litigant may be entitled to cost just as a litigant who is represented by a lawyer.
2: So if you were to give advice, Justice Price, to a family SRL, now we're talking generally, to protect themselves best as possible against the risk of being ordered to pay the costs of the other side. Obviously, the best way to do that is to win, but given that there is always uncertainty, uh, what are the other ways that you would advise them to try to protect themselves or to minimize the risk of being paid to pay? order to pay costs.
0: Obviously the the best way is is to try to reduce the risk of losing and that is to by uh, obtaining advice from a lawyer as to what their chances of success are in the litigation or in opposing the litigation. If the litigant is unable to afford a lawyer, there are other resources that are available to self-represented litigants. And you mentioned the website of our court, the Superior Court, uh, contains a section with useful information and guidance for self-represented litigants, your project has a website with additional resources, uh, including a list of of lawyers who may provide piecemeal litigant uh, legal services, uh, which we refer to as unbundled uh, legal services. Another resource that Many litigants find useful is what we call the Can Lee uh, website, that's C A N L I I, which is a free website operated by the Federation of Law Societies, which a litigant can use to find decisions of the court that have used certain keywords or expressions, such as the issues involved in a particular case, and that are, are articulate the test. Uh, that the judge is required to apply in dealing with that issue and the factors that the judge is required to consider in making his or her decision. Mm -hmm. And again, your uh, project, I think, has created resources that guide litigants through the use of that uh, website.
2: Right, and uh, the Canley Primer and also how to read and understand a case report, and we will include all these links in the uh, podcast uh, page. the end of this. But I know as well, Justice Price, that one of the things that you have been very strong on in your judicial work is trying to encourage parties to consider making office to settle. And of course, that will also affect how likely it is that somebody will be asked to pay the other side's costs and how much. So would you say a little bit about that? Sure.
0: Making an offer to settle is usually highly recommended, both to protect against the costs that a party may become liable for, but also in order to settle the case without the need uh, for taking a case through to a completion of the trial. The court wants to see that the litigants are working at settlement and will factor this into a a cost award. If their offer was better than the outcome uh, was, in other words, if the party who received the offer would have been better off by accepting it right. instead of going to the end of uh, the trial, then the judge may conclude that it was the party who received that offer and did not accept it who really caused an unnecessary trial, and in Mm. that case, the litigant who received the offer, even if that litigant was successful in the outcome and would normally be entitled to his or her compensation for costs, might forfeit their right to those costs and, in fact, may be required to pay compensation to the costs of the unsuccessful litigant in effect, as a reward for making an offer that right. could have uh, rendered the settlement unnecessary.
2: Yep. So, so the bottom line here is that people really should think seriously about making reasonable offers. Obviously, they're not going to offer something that they wouldn't feel met their needs, but that judges will always pay attention to how much evidence there is of efforts to settle. Is, That's right. Is that right?
0: Yes, and I think that is a key uh, benefit of of a self-represented litigant, consulting a lawyer for, as you say, an unbundled legal Mm. service. That is to get advice on either an offer that has been received or an offer that can be made to the other side that represents a reasonable outcome for the litigant.
2: I'd like to move on to a question, Justice Price, that we hear a lot, which is, People come to us and say, there's a lot of conflict in my family case, you know, myself and the other parents, if this is two parents, have different stories about what's happening here, what's best for the kids. And they ask us, you know, what is a simple question, but I know it has a complicated answer. How do I best ensure that my evidence is considered by the judge? And one of the things that we, I think, often hear in people's discontent, if I can put it that way, is a feeling that the judge has not reviewed their material until they stand in the hearing.
0: One thing that it's important to understand, a judge hearing, for example, motions may have up to 20 or 25 motions in a day to decide. And that means 20 or 25 motion material to review Three. the evening yeah. before the case is heard. So the better the facts and the law, if it's available to the leg and is organized, and the more quickly it can be reviewed, then the more likely the judge will take the time to be able read to it go carefully. It, yeah. yes. As I said, the information is available if the litigant organizes the facts under each of those factors. And right. it makes it much easier for the judge to go through those facts in relation to the factor that he, he or she must consider and to focus it then on the issue that the judge has to decide. So that is, is an extremely useful exercise that a, a litigant can perform. And for each of the facts that the litigant is referring to, have a reference to the page and paragraph number of the particular affidavit where those facts are set out.
2: Now, I know one of the things that is very difficult for people to do, and you know I don't think that we should sugarcoat this because it is very difficult is to figure out just how much to put into their factum or more their statements to the court. And I know that for a lot of self-represented litigants, they feel they have to put in everything they possibly can. And we know from some of the decisions and judgments that have been in, in cases involving self-represented litigants, not yourself but other judges, that judges then become irritated that there is so much material and so much to read, some of which they don't consider to be relevant and and may not be relevant but of course this is very difficult for somebody to be able to judge do you have any advice to someone who might be tempted to put everything into their factum.
0: Well, there is a great benefit to being to being discriminating and selective as to what facts are there and what facts are not, and to consult a lawyer again for unbundled legal services in pruning an affidavit of of facts that are not going to be uh, considered relevant by the judge. Remember that a fact, in order to be even admissible, must be relevant. And uh, a fact, in order to be relevant, must be one that would uh, affect the decision. That is, that a judge can rely on that fact Mm. to make the decision. So that fact is one that might... Cause the decision to be more likely uh, to go one way than another. So Canley database, so far as it provides access to cases where judges have said for this issue, whether it's uh, custody of a child or access to a child, here is the test that I must apply according to the legislation and the jurisprudence in order to make a decision. And here are the factors Mm -hmm. uh, that I must consider in applying that test. Well then, if the litigant has that test and has those factors, then the litigant can organize the facts under each of those factors.
2: And that's how they can
0: structure it. Exactly.
1: Asked two SRLs, Jana Sarasivic and Elizabeth Roberts, to comment on Justice Price's informative podcast. Jana reflects that the information provided by Justice Price would have been useful before she entered the legal process without assistance. And Jana also talks about her experience in the justice system in a protracted family case where the other side was not interested in settlement. Elizabeth Roberts emphasizes the need for public legal education of the type provided by Justice Price in this podcast and illustrates the lacuna in her knowledge and that of many other self-reps with a story of a judge who was helpful in directing her in how to package and present her materials, but as she explains, she still faced an uphill
2: battle.
3: what Justice Price explained in this podcast sounds logical, just the way I always imagined our justice system could and should work. I did appreciate hearing in plain English the role a judge is meant to play in family law cases. The two main things that stood out for me were one, that judges do not have to be an expert in family law, which I was not aware of, and two, that judges may hear up to 20 to 25 motions per day. This makes me wonder how a judge can fully review and prepare for each case in a timely manner. My time in the family court system, my reality, did not progress the way Justice Price described it. In my case, it took dozens of wasteful court appearances, mediation attempts, settlement conferences, etc., over many years before I was unwillingly put in a position where I had to go to trial. The single outstanding issue on my file was the lack of financial disclosure by the other party. I was baffled that no one seemed to be able to effectively compel the required disclosure. At no time were any costs awarded to me. This, despite being represented by three different law firms, public counsel through the Family Law Information Center, and my own attempts as an SRL. I was never given the information presented here by Justice Price, and was told, inaccurately I may add, that the losing party pays 100% of the cost for the trial. Although I won the trial, whatever the rules, I still ended up being financially ruined. Regarding encouraging a settlement to avoid going to court, I observed no serious interest in providing incentives for parties to avoid a trial. I could not understand why the judges did not put a stop to the ongoing delays and, in my opinion, abuses of the judicial process. I've come to understand that if one party does not agree to cooperate, there's nothing the other party can do. Lastly, it would have been helpful to have clear instructions on how to present one's written evidence properly and effectively to a judge.
4: I appreciate Justice Price's comments. I cannot emphasize enough the need for public, legal, education, and information training. I believe it was the Supreme Court of Canada law librarian Dale Berry who commented that it's not enough to communicate and convey information, but that the communication and information being conveyed must be understood by the recipient. That's very important observation for self-reps who are struggling to understand process and law. It had been suggested to me that I observe a morning in motion court so that I could see what I might expect when my own matter was heard. What an eye-opener that experience was. The justice overseeing the courtroom that morning was respectful and sensitive to the needs of the self-represented parties, and that made a huge difference to the overall environment and to leveling the playing field to at least some degree. The justice commented to the self-represented parties in the room, which included myself sitting in the back row of the public gallery taking notes, and she said, What I want to know from you is what the legal issues are, what the legal test is you are relying upon, and what it is you want me to decide. I sat back and thought, wow, now that was 10 seconds of clarity and information I had searched for months to try and understand. The problem was, what the Justice did not convey to the self-represented parties that morning was how to package the information that she had just provided to them. And most self-reps wouldn't even know how to interpret the information. I was lucky. I had some insight as to what she had meant because I had learned how to read case law. I went home and learned more about legal issues versus the facts of my case and how those two elements compared. I found case law that contained the legal test I needed to compare my facts against so that I could see if my facts met that test. And while in one hearing that I was observing with similar issues to my own case, I paid attention to the case law the young lawyer read into the record. I went home and looked that case up online, and it fit with my own matter. I felt hopeful that I may have a chance of being heard. But what happened instead during the hearing of my own matter was because I had not been able to find clear information regarding the process of how to package my facts, and I didn't know how to package it correctly. I didn't understand. I did the best I could, but the justice that morning expunged my materials. When I realized what was about to happen, I scrambled. I asked permission of the justice to speak. I intuitively realized that it wasn't enough for me to put the case law that I was relying upon into my materials because my materials had been processed incorrectly. I needed to read the case law, at least the main authority, I wanted to rely upon into the court record. When I finished, the justice looked at opposing counsel and said there was nothing more she could do. She adjourned the matter and ordered me to bring a notice of motion of my own in proper form. Now, being a self-rep is a learn-as-you-go process. And one thing I learned as I went along that would help assist with cost savings, I learned about Rule 51, a request to admit. And request to admits help streamline issues, which can help reduce the amount of time that may be required to prove facts and helps reduce the amount of documents that may otherwise be required and submitted to the court. That can make a big difference in terms of costs affidavits, notice of motion precedents are provided to the public, that would be another way to help us understand through visual tools how these materials get laid out, and step-by-step processes.
1: The NSROP wants to thank Justice David Price, as well as Yana Sarasivic and Elizabeth Roberts for their work on this podcast. And to say if any listener has an idea for an important topic that we could use for a future show on public legal education, please get in touch and give us your ideas.
5: In other news. This week in other news, we're recapping some of the amazing things some provinces are doing with their Access to Justice Weeks. First off, Monday, October 22nd, marked the start of the third annual Access to Justice Week in Ontario, hosted by the Action Group on Access to Justice. The week will include a range of sessions, including Mental Health, Access and Ethics, Second, Indigenous Language Speakers and the Canadian Justice System, Third, Addressing the Access to Legal Representation Gap in Family Law, and Fourth, Justice, Innovation and Community. For more information about the action group on Access to Justice, or about Access to Justice Week in Ontario, we've included links on our website below the podcast. The event will also be using the hashtag a to j 2018 on Twitter, and we're sure there'll be some exciting conversations. Be sure to chime in. Our second update is that Saskatchewan's second annual Access to Justice Week is currently running from October 20th to 26th. The week includes discussions and activities that will engage different actors in the access to justice conversation, as well as highlight projects and programs that aim to improve access to justice for all Saskatchewan residents. The week-long events will build on themes from the University of Saskatchewan College of Laws 2017 Dean's Forum on Access to Justice and Dispute Resolution and will include a College of Law Faculty Research Roundtable a run-for-justice fundraiser, an afternoon and evening of free legal resources trade show with Walk-In Family Law Information Clinic, Walk-In Wills and Estates Law Information Clinic, and Legal Information Presentations, the Saskatchewan Law Review Lecture. If you're interested in chiming in on social media, search for the hashtag SKA to j 2018 Lastly, British Columbia had their access to Justice Week from October 1st to 5th. This included a variety of events at the law schools of University of British Columbia, the University of Victoria, and Thompson Rivers University, and events hosted by the Law Society, the Law Foundation, and the BC branch of the Canadian Bar Association. These included events like Justice Hack BC, a discussion of how artificial intelligence can promote access to justice, the 7th Annual National Pro Bono Conference, a session of the NSRLP's SRL game, and even a couple lectures by Julie, including discussions of access to justice for survivors of sexual violence and others on the role of the new lawyer in stepping up to the challenge of access to justice. Again, feel free to chime in on social media with the hashtag a Week BC. That's it for this week of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower.